Hello, everybody. Welcome to Narrative Live on a Tuesday. We're so glad you're here with us. Eric Garland will be with us shortly. And so will Sergei Slipchenko. We're just enthralled by what is happening right now at the confirmation hearing of Katanji Brown Jackson, where Republicans are seeming to be mounting a racist assault on the judge who is uh, currently standing confirmation for a position in, in the Supreme Court of, as a justice. Unbelievable questions that are constantly being asked that seem to be framing the entire proceedings tonight in terms of race, which is kind of stunning considering where this country's come from and what this particular party has been doing for the last few years while they were in power just before this presidency. So we're going to take some of that live now. As Senator Tom Cotton here asks questions about the number of prosecutions for various crimes. Professors think that sentences for child pornography are too harsh. Uh, I don't, and I bet a lot of normal Americans don't either. Uh, You've said repeatedly that sentencing is a discretionary act, and I understand that and I agree with it. But you always seem to use your discretion in these child pornography cases to reduce the sentences. I'd say if, if I had that discretion, I'd probably throw the book at child pornographers. Maybe that's just me. But let's turn to drug crime. Last year, more than 100,000 Americans died from drug overdose. Drug overdose deaths and gang crime have both skyrocketed in recent years. At the same time, a lot of soft on crime laws and lower sentences have been advocated, including on occasions judged by yourself. In general, do you think the United States should weaken or strengthen sentences for fentanyl traffickers? Traffickers, not users. Senator. Whether or not Congress chooses to strengthen or weaken penalties for any crime is a determination of this body, which is ordinarily made after study and review determination. Um, that is in the province of Congress. Well, Judge, you've said before that sentencing is a discretionary act, so that that is literally the job of the judge in any of these cases to determine whether to have a shorter or a longer sentence. Respectfully, Senator, the judge makes that determination not based on one data point in general, which is what you asked me in general, should we lower or, or heighten sentences? A judge is making a determination in a particular case, looking at all of the factors. It's discretionary for sure, but we do so within the bounds of a sentencing range that Congress prescribes and at times in which Congress decides that a penalty needs to be heightened, they impose a mandatory minimum. Then our range is shorter. And when we're looking at the crime, we're not looking as a policy matter across all fentanyl crimes and determining whether the penalty should be increased. As a judge, we are asked in the context of a single prosecution regarding a particular person who has committed a horrible crime, but also says Congress is a person who has a life, who has a job, who has all of the other factors that Congress has told judges they have to look at when they decide what penalty to impose in that particular case between the range that Congress sets. So it's not a situation in which I can, in my role as a judge, tell you as a general matter whether penalties should be increased or decreased. I have to say, I, I think that not many Americans, especially not 100,000 Americans uh, who's lost someone to 
drug overdose. I think these are tough questions, but let's move on. Uh, let's talk about retroactivity. When you were on the Sentencing Commission, you repeatedly advocated for retroactively reducing drug trafficking sentences. So this is a case where a drug king, kingpin who's dealing fentanyl gets sentenced, and then a few years later, he gets lucky. He gets in front of some new judge who's maybe more sympathetic and thinks he got a raw, raw deal, or maybe he just gets in front of the same judge a few years removed from seeing the faces of the victims of his crime. Uh, do you believe that resentencing years after a conviction tends to reduce sentence lengths? Senator, respectfully, I just wanted to um, remark on your previous question and, and your um, statement that these are not difficult questions. They're, it's not that they're difficult questions. It's that they're not questions for me. I am not the Congress. I am not making policy around sentencing. My job is to look in a particular case and decide what the penalty should be within the range that Congress prescribes. I understand. You, you were making policy, though, at the Sentencing Commission, and you're implementing changes to sentencing guidelines. So my question again is, do you believe that resentencing years after a conviction tends to reduce sentence lengths? I'm, I'm not sure I understand your question. Obviously, if you resentence, you're giving the judge another opportunity to look at the circumstances in light of the changed penalties. Sometimes the judge in that new situation will keep the same penalty. A, a resentencing is just an opportunity for the judge to reevaluate in light of the changed circumstances. Okay. Um, almost without exception, retroactively weakening sentencing laws and guidelines lets hardened criminals out early. I, I always hear the argument. I hear it from some of the senators on this panel. I heard a version of it from you earlier that each case is going to go before a judge and it won't be an automatic release because each judge is going to assess the facts and hear the arguments. In 2014, you said that judges would not, would not likely reduce the sentences in the vast majority, vast majority of cases, if sentencing guidelines for drug trafficking were reduced. I think you missed that one, Judge. Since 2014, retroactive reduction took, when retroactive reduction took effect, approximately two-thirds of all convicted drug traffickers who asked for early release got it. That's 31,000. 614 hardened drug traffickers back on the streets. More than 7,500 of those hardened drug traffickers use weapons in their crimes. So that means that only one-third of these drug traffickers who sought to have a retroactive reduction of their sentence were denied. Judges, one-third, a vast majority. Senator, it's hard for me to answer questions about these numbers because I'm trying to understand whether this is a retroactive release that was a result of the Sentencing Commission's actions or Congress's. Congress made a decision about uh, retroactive reductions in drug penalties. So I, I'm just but, not sure what... But Judge, in both cases, we always hear the argument, whether it's from members of Congress to include senators on this committee or the Sentencing Commission, that we shouldn't worry. There's going to be individualized case-by-case -case determination. And that is my that is my experience. That's when when there's a when there is a retroactive uh, change. So what happens is that 
um, whether it's the guidelines that are changed or the laws that are changed, which happens in Congress, there is a subsequent determination as to whether or not to apply that retroactively, apply that change so that both the people who get um, convicted of that penalty moving forward and the people who have already been convicted, both of them get the benefit of the change if the determination is made to make it retroactive. Under that circumstance where you're talking about a penalty change applied to prior people, each one of those prior people goes back before a judge. And a judge, usually the sentencing judge in the first instance, will reevaluate whether or not to, this is generally, there are some exceptions, but generally speaking, um, the judge will reevaluate whether or not to give that person the benefit of the change. This is an individual assessment. That's what Congress requires in every sentence and, and ultimately um, one that benefits all of us under the law because judges are being asked to look at these cases and not make just generalized uh, determinations. So, so the 2014 comment was specifically about the sentencing commission, but generally, whether it's in front of the commission or the Congress, we always hear this argument that judges are going to make these individualized cases and not that many people will be released. I'll point out that of the one third that were uh, not reduced, the vast majority of those were not eligible. The percentage in, of cases in which a sentence is not reduced for public safety reasons because someone is viewed as too dangerous to release that early is 1%. It's 1%. Judge, do you remember a man named Keith Young? Yes. Good. For the benefit of my colleagues, uh, let me quickly cover the basics of his case. You sentenced him in 2018. Keith Young was a career criminal who had previously been convicted of trafficking cocaine. In 2017, he was running a drug business in his house where his children lived and was found with two one-kilogram bricks of heroin worth hundreds of thousands of dollars along with a gun, ammunition, thousands of dollars in cash, and equipment to cut and package heroin for retail sale. The drug lab also confirmed that there was fentanyl in both bricks of heroin. And in one of the two bricks, there was actually more fentanyl than there was heroin. While at the D.C. jail awaiting trial, Young bragged about his arrest and about how he was a kingpin. Those are his words, not mine. Kingpin. He was even recorded calling his wife and brother to give them instructions on collecting drug money from people for him. The prosecutors filed a notice of Young's criminal history, which meant he faced a mandatory minimum of 20 years. You did not seem to like that, Judge. In fact, at his sentencing, you said, this is a quote, that you shared his frustration, that you couldn't give him a lighter sentence. I was shocked to see this in the transcript. I was also shocked that you apologized to this drug kingpin for having to follow the law. You literally said that you didn't think 20 years was fair. This is the quote. And for this, I am sorry, mostly because I believe in second chances. You apologized to this career criminal, a drug kingpin, in his own words. He was not some low-level, first-time drug offender who made a bad, bad choice. That was in 2018. But in 2020, you got a second chance. After Young's sentence, Congress passed something called the First Step Act, which reduced sentences for serious drug traffickers with lengthy criminal records. During the pandemic, lots 
of criminals like Keith Young tried to twist the First Step Act's compassionate release provision, which was intended for terminally ill elderly inmates to get early release and blame it on COVID. You had none of that, and that's good. You rightly said at his resentencing hearing, quote, COVID-19 is not only present in prisons, and you said that Young's past as a smoker and his claim of various other health issues did not entitle him to early release. If you had stopped there, I would have cited that as a great example of how you followed the law and made a well-reasoned decision. Unfortunately, you didn't stop there. You said in the resentencing that, quote, Congress did not make their changes under the First Step Act retroactive, that if they had, then you could have given him a reduced sentence. But then you said, no matter what the law says, and this is a quote, Judge, the court feels as though in this moment, per Mr. Young's compassionate release motion, the court is being called upon to evaluate the length of his sentence under the revised section of the law in the First Step Act. And so it is almost as if I am sentencing him today. And if I were to do so, he would face a sentence that would be well below the 240 months that Mr. Young received. And so for that reason, I will grant Mr. Young's motion. Judge Jackson, before you granted this fentanyl kingpin's motion to reduce his sentence, did you contact any of the victims from his case? Senator, thank you for allowing me to address Mr. Young's situation. I, I asked a simple question. Did you contact the victims in his case or not? Senator, Mr. Young was not released. His sentence was reduced, and I did not contact the victims in and his case because there another... were no victims. He committed uh, a crime, a drug crime. There were no identifiable victims in his case. Drug crime is not a victimless crime. A hundred thousand Americans were killed by overdoses. Understood, Senator, but there was no one to contact. And you just there were acknowledge, no Judge, you just acknowledge that you did not release him. You're right. You didn't release him. He filed a motion for compassionate release. You denied that rightly, but you reduced his sentence. He didn't file a motion to reduce his sentence. He wasn't eligible for a reduced sentence under the First Step Act because it wasn't retroactive towards him. You took a motion for compassionate release to get out of prison and turn it into a motion to reduce a sentence. So he's going to be released seven and a half years earlier, years from now. Last week, Judge, when we talked in our office, you talked about a lot about judicial restraint. Is transforming his motion for compassionate release into a motion to reduce a sentence for this drug trafficking kingpin, an example of judicial restraint, Judge? Yes, Senator, it is. And I will explain how. Mr. Young, as you say, was facing originally a sentence of 20 years in prison, which I imposed. I tried Mr. Young, uh, who went to trial, primarily because he was facing such a long penalty. I looked at the evidence in his case. He was absolutely the kingpin that you're talking about. But the way that our laws work, the 20-year sentence that he received for the amount of, of uh, uh, heroin that he had was increased based on a sentence that he received, I think it was 10 or 15 years before. He had no criminal history between the old, old sentence. And I, and forgive me, I can't remember exactly what it is, and I'm sure people will look it up. But 
10, 15 years before he had some minor sentence. Then he had this really obviously serious, terrible sentence. And the government filed what is called an 851, which is an enhancement based on his really, really old prior criminal history. I followed the law, which said that he had to go to jail for 20 years. It would have been more like 10 years if the government hadn't taken into account his very old criminal history. But I said, fine, this is the law. I'm following it. You're going to jail for 20 years. In the interim, COVID happens. We get lots of compassionate release motions. And there's a statute that Congress has enacted which allows defendants to seek compassionate release, to seek reduction of their sentence, not just release, reduction, release, some adjustment to their penalty under the law if there are extraordinary and compelling reasons to do so. That's the quote from the statute, extraordinary and compelling reasons. Doesn't say uh, anything more narrow than that, although you do have to look at the guidelines related to compassionate release, all of which I did related to his motion. And he argued several things. He argued his smoking, his asthma. These were reasons, he said, for compassionate release. And I disagreed. What I did find extraordinary and compelling is the fact that between the 20-year sentence that I gave him originally and the compassionate release motion that he filed, Congress changed the law. Congress decided that the old penalty, the old crime, was no longer eligible for the increased. So that a person who was convicted at the time of his compassionate release motion for doing exactly what Mr. Young had done would not get a 20-year sentence. That would not be lawful for a person at that moment. And one of the things that Congress says to the judges is care about unwarranted sentencing disparity. Care about the fact that the person you're sentencing is being treated differently than someone else who committed exactly the same crime. And I understand it wasn't retroactive in the sense that everybody absent a compelling, uh, uh, absent a compassionate release motion, wouldn't have been eligible for resentencing. But here I have a defendant before me and all of the factors that Congress has asked me to take into account and a compelling argument that there were extraordinary and compelling circumstances, that is a change in the law that would create unwarranted sentencing disparity if I didn't take account of it. And so what I determined under those circumstances is that I would sentence, resentence Mr. Young to the penalty that Congress had decided was the appropriate penalty for the conduct that he committed as of the time of his motion. Judge, Congress did change the law after a sentencing in the first step back. That was a terrible mistake. Congress specifically did not make that change retroactively. And you saw that and you thought it was extraordinary and compelling, even though Congress specifically did not make it retroactive. You chose to rewrite the law because you were sympathetic to a fentanyl drug kingpin 
whom you had expressed frustration at having sentenced him to his to his 20 year sentence in the first place. You twisted the law and you rewrote it so you could cut the sentence of a drug kingpin. That's what you did, Judge. Respectfully, Senator, I disagree. Congress provided judges through the compassionate release motion mechanism with the opportunity to review sentences. Congress, prior to the compassionate release mechanism being enacted, a judge who imposed a sentence would have no opportunity to revisit. In Mr. Young's case, the question was, with this compassionate release motion, under a circumstance in which Congress had changed the law, was that an extraordinary and compelling circumstance to revisit his sentence? And I made a determination that it was. So I suppose then, if you're confirmed, we can just count on you to always rule in favor of retroactivity, no matter what the facts of the case are, because it was a blatant, blatant rewrite of the law here. So you could reduce the sentence of a drug kingpin if you didn't like sentencing to 20 years in the first place. No, Senator, it was not. Senator Booker. <laughs> Approaching 11 hours now of a long day. And forgive me, I'm, uh, Lindsey Graham, I think he asked you something, and I'd like to just put it this way. On a scale uh, from one to 10, how deep is your faith that I won't ask that question? <laughs> You're asking me or no, you, just, you won't ask me? I'm just joking. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I won't ask you that. But I do want to go through some of the things that uh, some of my colleagues did on, on top line. And forgive me, I don't want to dwell too much, but some of it I found today um, uh, just to me really didn't hold water. And I want to start with uh, my friend and colleague, uh, Ted Cruz, who is my friend. I like, he's a Texan. My, one of my favorite Texans is Brene Brown's who says it's hard to hate up close, so pull people in. And a lot of times in this uh, culture of tribal politics, uh, the reality is we know each other, we get to know each other over years, and I've had the pr privilege of working with Ted on a lot of really good policy. Uh, so I went back to my office and re-listened to his questioning of you about critical race theory, and he referenced uh, your speech, which I hadn't read. Uh, uh, you Harvard folks are so uh, well-focused on these things, but I just I read your speech. And I was very surprised. Uh, Ted had a very big chart. I think he needs to give Senator Whitehouse some advice on charts. Senator Whitehouse, this was very small. It was almost as if they were proportionate to their state sizes. Um, but uh, easy there, New Jersey. <laughs> Um, Mr. Chairman, I, I would request that my colleagues in the Democratic Party would stop interrupting me. Um, <laughs> But he, he, he talked about your speech. And when I read your speech, uh, there's a couple things that jumped out. First of all, was this, he, he, he acknowledged it was a very powerful speech, very moving speech about extraordinary black women. I have a criticism. Your mother was not in it, but I will leave that alone. <laughs> um, but uh, there's some things he honed in on, almost as if they seemed to be accusations, which don't hold merit to me. We have a saying in New Jersey, uh, I felt it was all hat, no cattle. Um, and so here, here we... He, he, she, he said that you called uh, the woman who wrote the 1619 Project, that you called her provocative. That, that's not a compliment necessarily if you call someone provocative, is it? 
No. No. I, I mean, I think Ted Cruz is very provocative. And that doesn't mean I, that doesn't mean I agree with what he's saying, his philosophy. It doesn't mean I agree with his statements. But uh, he, he pointed out you also called the author acclaimed. She won a Pulitzer Prize, correct? In she did. In journalism. So she is acclaimed. She is. Uh, but in nowhere are you heralding her as this is a reflective of your philosophy. That's true, right? Correct. Yeah. So I, I don't understand that at all. Uh, it, part of his chart also was a lot of ellipses skipping out things. But you mentioned critical race theory when you're talking about policies in general. I actually went back to that talk, too. And I saw you threw everything in there. You were talking about psychology, economics, all different types of disciplines as touching upon the law. I think there was everything in there. I seem to be, except for astrology. But um, you, you, you understand that that was you were just listing a list of things that people could say touch the law. They weren't your philosophies at all. Correct, Senator. And that speech was not related to what I do as a judge that was talking about sentencing policy and all of the different academic disciplines that might relate to it. Yeah, and then finally, I, we're entering an age that is surprising to me in American society where lots of books are being banned and uh, uh, lots of talks about books being read. Uh, you're on the board of a private school and you have no uh, supervision or authority over what books the children read in a private school, correct? Correct. I really, I really do appreciate that. Uh, jumping really quickly to a lot of talk today um, about uh, these uh, child exploitation cases. Um, and, and Senator Durbin, I think that uh, actually Josh Hawley used the word attack when describing his own, his own. So I, I don't understand why, what that point of sensitivity was. But I, 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 individual cases, and we've now heard about two, you've, you've presided over as a judge more than 10, 15 cases? I've presided over 14 cases that involve child sex crimes, but I've over my career as a trial judge, I've presided over more than 100. Right. And cases, cases are heavily fact-specific, right? That is true. Did you remember all the facts of the case that uh, Senator Hawley was? I uh, did not. You did not, right. And, and the facts matter, right? They do. And, and as a judge, you're looking at all of the facts of the case, not just what might be talked about later or what people are honing in. You have to take everything into account and make a decision, correct? Yes, that's what Congress has required judges to do. Right. And just to clarify that Congress thing, because again, uh, you went to this elite law school. I went to a gritty inner city law school, <laughs> Yale. Um, and uh, so you know this better than me, but it was actually 1984 that the sentencing laws, uh, the sentencing standards were passed down, correct? I believe so, yes. Yeah, it was 1984. And then later in 2002 or three, things were updated. But that 1984 was before the internet uh, completely. And I, I just want to clarify also the Booker decision. Yes. Could you just clarify for the record, because my mom might be watching, no relation to me. All right, let's uh, let's take it a stop there. What an interesting uh, little bit of time we had to witness that confirmation hearing of Katanji Brown Jackson. It's quite stunning. Uh, Eric Garland and Sergei Slepchenko are our two guests tonight. Sergei is obviously here to talk about uh, Ukraine, but uh, we'll, we may have a moment to opine about Judge Jackson here. But Eric, why don't you start us off here? That uh, Tom Cotton. I don't know what it was. It was an attack. It was a racial profiling. It wasn't a, it wasn't a typical uh, question and answer session at a confirmation hearing. Okay. Here's the, the amazing thing when you're watching um, Ted Cruz and Tom Cotton 
both of whom are are lawyers, I believe, and Cruz, who argued at the Supreme Court at the age of 30, and yet they have this completely nonsensical set of questions for a Supreme Court justice. That's because they're not asking questions. They are creating content for Fox News and for other propaganda outlets to spit onto social media platforms. Those are not real questions from real attorneys. And they know it. These are questions designed um, to create a sense that this woman is somehow soft on these criminals, is maybe even, I don't know, they're trying to suggest that she is a criminal herself. I, I don't know what they're talking about when they, you know, make it sound like she's on the side of kingpins. I mean, she's not taking judge, you know, she's not reducing the, the sentences because she's, uh, you know, she's a kingpin's friend. She's reducing sentences because that's what well, Congress asked her to do. You know, it's funny. The um, when you have a mob money launderer in the White House, and what a mm. what a real estate front money launderer does is they take the proceeds of heroin and cocaine and they put it into luxury New York real estate. That's mm. exactly what Donald Trump's job was before he became president and then just worked for Vladimir Putin full time. That was his profession. And so yeah. now to say that they're, you know, they are so against drugs that they had a guy who cleaned drug profits for a living in the White House. And that's about to be exposed as we start to sanction these oligarchs and track their money. So nice try, guys. Also, as far yeah. as the focus on, you know, the child sex crimes, just as Republican yeah, state seriously. governments are being exposed for allowing child sex trafficking to happen on their watch when they have been very well warned by the federal government agencies, um, now they're coming out and that's their big argument. That's interesting. I understand the race baiting, but the drugs and the uh, the child sex crimes, that's maybe maybe they protest a bit too much. Well, you know, I mean, they're trying to build an image in the minds of their voters that this is not only a liberal, you know, activist kind of judge who's who's going to vote on racial lines, but that she's going to also be soft on crime, which is not. She's just not. That's not who she, she is. is she has been supported by the National Fraternal Order of Police. Yeah. So, yeah. She's, so tough. she's a tough, she's a she, tough judge. The, the pedophile all, thing know, I didn't get at all. I didn't, I mean, I, 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 I understand what they're trying to do. It's horrible. I mean, it's like a, it's setting her up um, as being something that she's not, but why bring it up in the way that they did for like an hour? It's just, it's offensive really. As with this, uh, all this rape questions or they, drug questions, just ridiculous. They could be aware of a news cycle that's about to hit. Maybe yeah, are aware of a news cycle. This is clearly done for the news. And I mean, I've got to say, for all that she is uh, having to endure over there, she is no Brett Kavanaugh. I mean, she is calm and collected <laughs> and smiling and, you know, and answering everything with complete uh, professionalism compared to Brett Kavanaugh, if you recall his tirade at the start of his confirmation hearings. I mean, this is really, uh, she's a class act. She hasn't tearfully declared her love for beer even once. <laughs> Not even once. Remember that? Remember the count? <laughs> oh, that was unbelievable. Anyhow, so I'm glad that uh, we're going to see this. I, you know, I want to say, Sergey, I, I don't know if you ever thought about this. I mean, it's sort of it was an interesting thing for me today because to, I'm so knee, you know, knee deep in the war coverage. I haven't even had a chance to look up. And suddenly I was like, oh, wait, there's a hearing. So, you know, starting to watch the civilized democratic process undergoing, you know, semi-civilized process undergoing here, I was 
struck by how much had changed in, in Ukraine in just the last month that you had all this democracy. You've had all this, you know, I know, I know the, the rider there is still sitting and there's still laws being passed, but so much of these things that we take for granted in democracy are, are not happening in Ukraine. I know you're not in Ukraine anymore. I, you're, you're in Toronto and we'll discuss that in a second, but just your sense of how these two sort of split screen moment is playing to you. You know, I've, I've been focused on Ukraine, obviously, especially in the past couple of months, but I haven't really followed U.S. politics for a while. And uh, I saw the hearing I mentioned on Twitter. I was following it through there briefly. And then, you know, watching this live stream. Yeah, it's kind of bizarre. I mean, it clearly the questions aren't uh, actually, you know, in good faith. It seems like, you know, they're trying to get either a reaction or like you said, like a news clip. Nice little kind of 30 second clip for their Instagram or whatever. Yeah, it's strange, Uh, (laughs) you know, coming from realities of war to this kind of like very political game, really. I mean, it's like they know what they're doing. They know what they're trying to, again, it's not in good faith. That's what what I'm going to say. You've had to tell us a little about your story because I know you were in Ukraine. You were doing your work at the Kiev Independent newspaper, which is Honestly, one of the best feeds out there that I get right now about what's going on in Ukraine. But you decided to leave. And tell us the whole story of why the decision to leave and how did it all go? Uh, Yeah. So I don't know if you followed the story, but uh, we were at Kiev Post. Uh, It shut down November 8th. We had Mm -hmm. some negotiations with the owner. It didn't work out. And we just decided to use that momentum of uh, support from the community. And we started uh, Kiev Independent. Uh, It was going pretty well. You know, uh, we have secured enough money to run for at least a year. So we were planning on doing that, you know, um, slowly build up a following, you know, like set up the basics for the company so we can um, not have the same issue again. Basically, the company is always going to be majority owned by the editorial team, you know, not individually, but like the editorial team, whoever it is in 10 years, 20 years. We kind of try to set up like those uh, kind of security checks, I guess. And yeah, it was, it was going well. Everything was good. Uh, I moved to Ukraine in uh, September. I was born there, but I left to Canada when I was eight years old with my family. And I came back now with my new family, my wife and my daughters. We were there for five months. We, I mean, obviously, I was following the situation uh, with Russia, with the troop buildup. Uh, and I think uh, up to the, to the 24th of February, I mean, literally midnight, three hours before the rockets started flying in, we were still like, you know, we're not sure, should we stay? Should we go like at least to Western Ukraine? If not, maybe, you know, a neighboring country. And we left off like, you know, let's see what the next couple of days are. And then we'll see. And then I woke up, I think it was about 5.30 a.m. Kiev time. I woke up to, I wouldn't say it was like could hear the bomb, but I woke up feeling like something woke me up and something's wrong. That's when I looked at my phone and, you know, it was, uh, Putin declares a special operation in Ukraine. And my uh, work chat was blowing up, you know, editors, journalists, just uh, trying to keep track of things, trying to put things uh, together. And yeah, uh, the, you know, reality hit. Um, I looked outside my window. Um, the main highway out of Kiev towards Western Ukraine is like uh, right next to me. So I could just see this long, long trail of never ending <laughs> cars going out at 5 a.m., 6 a.m., um, just constantly driving out. Basically woke up my wife, told her, it was kind of hard to put in words. I was just like, we need to go. And she understood. She was like, oh, okay. Uh, grabbed the bag each, like a personal bag, then got one suitcase and left Kiev. And then we left Ukraine on March 2nd. Initially, we went uh, west to my grandparents and then to Vinita, which is right next to Moldova. 
And then we walked on foot from uh, Vinica to Moldova. And then volunteers helped us get to Bucharest the same day. And we stayed two nights. And then, well, like we had a flight at 6 a.m. So we left at, uh, really early. It's quite a harrowing escape, Since actually. then we've been in Ukraine. Yeah. You know, were you expecting the war? I mean, were you expecting this invasion to escalate in the way that it did? I mean, it seems like most Ukrainians were not. All possibilities were considered. You know, even at our um, Kiev Independent, we had a meeting uh, a week or two before uh, talking about, like, who needs help, who has, like, plans to leave, if anything, who's planning to stay, how can we help, how can we make it easier for you? And then the day off, it was it was pretty hectic, you know, even though we had plans it was hard to decide because uh, kind of, I guess, uh, what the general consensus was, was that it could happen, but it's most likely to stay more contained to the east, mm-hmm. uh, which clearly didn't. I think when the first bomb or rocket uh, struck Kiev, that was like a, more of a wake-up call, like, yeah, it's, it's going to be much, much larger scale than we assumed. And then before that, you know, all possibilities seemed possible, but... I think nobody thought that it would be nearly all of Ukraine. It sounds like, you know, you just got there. You started setting up a new life. You got this job going. Five months later, you had to uproot yourself again in this horrific, urgent way. How does it feel having sort of, uh, you know, these two half-lives sort of being built over there? You haven't really established yourself yet, but then you have to leave. What do you know? If your friends are still there, or did they also leave? Or did your family get out at the same time? Yeah, it's surreal. You know, we started taking our kids to daycare. Um, it kind of started feeling like we were really settled, really relaxed, really enjoying it there. And then, you know, out of nowhere, all of a sudden we have to leave everything, leave our apartment behind, most of our belongings, and just, you know, flee somewhere safe. So it was definitely, coming back to Toronto, it was surreal. Kind of, my wife said, like, it kind of felt like we never left, you know. Almost, Almost like, like a holiday. Kind of, uh, yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah, it must be so much. difficult. Looking at the pictures now, I mean, it's night and day. You can't imagine what the city must look like now. Are you talking to your friends there? Are you able to communicate with them? Are there people still staying behind there? You're aware? You know, uh, most of the people I talk with are my colleagues. So, mm-hmm. I mean, most of us left. We had some people leave and then come back. So, right now we have three people uh, in Kiev or around Kiev. And, you know, it's strange because, I mean, you know, you look at photos like I've seen, you know, photos from Syria, from other conflicts, and it's like, it looks horrible, but I don't really have any relation. I don't really understand. But seeing the cafe that you want to or the building that you used to walk by every day to work, seeing it in ruins or bombed or whatever, it's a very different feeling. It's a very thing that brings reality closer to you. And it's hard to understand without seeing that firsthand or experiencing that firsthand. And yeah, there's still people in Kiev, um, like I said, three reporters, you know, they're living in uh, shelters, uh, coming back to their apartments. Some stopped going to shelters because they can't work from there with no Wi-Fi. So some of them are just, just staying in their buildings. And yeah, they're working, you know, uh, they're following martial law. Uh, journalists do have some exemptions, like they can leave at certain times with the appropriate accreditation. But uh, yeah, it's difficult. Uh, but at the same time, life goes on. You know, they send photos from the grocery store, people walking around, you know, with helmets uh, just to go buy groceries. And um, at any minute, you can hear the sirens go off and you have to run for cover. Uh, or, you know, if it's a underground grocery store and, you know, you're lucky, you can you can stay there. Sorry, Eric, I'll just ask one more question. Men of your age were supposed to stay and fight, right? I mean, that's sort of the rules in, you know, if you're a man of between 18 and 60, you weren't really allowed to leave the country. How come you were allowed to leave? I'm a Canadian citizen. Uh, Ukraine doesn't um, recognize dual citizenship at the moment. And when I moved to Canada, we had, uh, well, 
in Ukraine, you get your own passport uh, when you're 14, I think, or 15. And so me leaving at eight, I never actually had an uh, internal passport. And it's basically like I never had a citizenship in Ukraine. I'm not exactly sure what the legal, like, exact specifics are, but basically I'm a Canadian citizen. Must be a relief. It must be a real relief not to have to be facing that. Uh, Eric, sorry, I don't know if you want to have any questions you want to jump in here with. Just one, you know, you must have had uh, Ukrainian food growing up. When you moved to Ukraine, is there any food you particularly dug when you got back uh, to the land of your birth? Uh, yeah, for sure. You know, here in Canada, it's uh, especially Toronto, it's very diverse. There's uh, Ukrainian communities, Polish, Russian. Uh, so you can always find products and uh, restaurants and stuff that you'll find in Ukraine. But having the same food that I might have in Toronto and Ukraine is very different. Borscht, uh, Vareniki, you know, they're all uh, you know borscht. same, <laughs> technically the same thing. But having it in Ukraine, it's much better. <laughs> Salo, uh, you know, definitely the biggest difference. That's awesome. I was wondering. Looking at the situation now, you've got, you know, Putin is dug in. He's not seeming to want to move. The continuing, you know, indiscriminate attacks on civilian um, targets just seems to be every day worsening and intensifying. How are you viewing the next period of time? It does not look like it's going to be a, a short war. This looks like it could be a dug in period of time. Uh, you know, I think Russia or Putin uh, overestimated his army. Um, I think they were saying the same thing in 2014, that, you know, if Russia really wanted to, they could take Kiev. Uh, and I mean, maybe at the time that was p- true. You know, U- Ukraine's army was very much in shambles on 2014, 2013. And uh, in the, what is it, uh, eight years since it started, the Ukrainian army is very much modernized, you know, supported by Western allies. Um, I think he's seeing a different reality. Uh, as you see, anytime he tries to go into cities, he resorts to bombing them and trying to, you know, kind of terrorize the population into submission. But I think Ukraine is much bigger than uh, something that he can, uh, like, kind of handle. Uh, and I think the Ukrainian people are very much set on having their independence. And I don't think there's going to be a solution where Putin gets his way. Maybe there will be some kind of terms that Ukraine will negotiate to stop the massacre, but I don't see Putin getting his way. But it's also difficult to say how Russia might exit Ukraine because, you know, he doesn't have an exit path for himself. I mean, best case scenario, he gets replaced in some way, whatever that is. And perhaps the new leadership will, you know, kind of say this is all Putin's fault. Um, we're we're removing the army, like take off the sanctions and let's get back to status quo. Mm-hmm. I think that's what everybody hopes for, for like a basket scenario. But at the moment, it's so hard. It's impossible to say. So Joe Biden is back in Europe tomorrow. He's going to be leading a bunch of meetings with the EU and NATO. It seems like they'll be intensifying the sanctions against Russia and also probably announcing some of these um, new air defense installations that they've given the Ukrainians via their complicated procedures that they've done. Do you think that's going to make a, a difference? It seems to me like it will. It seems like if there's one thing that could tip the scales in, in the Ukrainian favor from the stalemate we have now, it's these air defense uh, weapons and these um, switchblade uh, drones. Uh, yeah, I mean, it seems like Ukraine, um, you know, there's definitely a difference in uh, firepower. Uh, Russia has much more uh, artillery, uh, rocket munitions. So I don't think that's going to stop the shelling and the bombing. It's not going to stop too soon. Um, I think a big problem is um, 
that Ukraine is doing pretty well on the ground. I mean, we've seen, uh, you know, confirmed footage of uh, Russian kind of being disorganized. Uh, their uh, equipment is very much in uh, questionable state. And um, I think the ground forces are doing pretty well considering the situation, considering the, especially, you know, the pre-war calculations where two days in Ukraine will fall, things like that. Clearly Ukraine's holding up pretty well. And yeah, like you said, I think having a, a more air defense will definitely help Ukraine. Uh, I don't know. I can't predict how significant it will be, but I think any improved air defenses will definitely help prevent at least uh, civilian casualties. Eric, what's your take on where uh, Putin is going? Do you think he's going to stop at Ukraine or do you think, as many are saying, uh, that he's going to, you know, certainly try to get Moldova, but maybe even uh, try to get Poland or some other uh, territories. What's your sense? Where this is like? Well, as of a couple hours ago, they were seeing smoke from the Russian embassy in Poland, in Warsaw. Mm-hmm. So that so that usually means they're burning documents and getting ready to pull out. They may be getting declared persona non grata, depending on um, the state of the, their. You know, if that country wants to declare those uh, ambassadors or the you know the diplomatic staff as um, you know agents of espionage, which of course happens pretty often with Russian embassies. Or as I like to say, you know, there are some people in American embassies who are in fact intelligence officers when they're abroad. And there are never diplomatic staff in Russian embassies anywhere who are not espionage officers. <laughs> Some though aren't- The cultural Trump- attaches or are not real cultural attaches? I'm always, um, I was convinced they are. So many know, cultural janitors, attaches. The janitors are still GRU at the Russian embassy. But no, right. remember when they had like 800 kilos of blow in yeah. the embassy in Argentina. Oh, yeah. I mean, it was like a bad episode of Miami Vice <laughs> down there. And, you know, that's the kind of thing that, you know, that gets you noticed. I think we're at the 20th anniversary of, uh, or there, maybe a little more than that, of um, when the Russians got persona non grata for having been behind uh, the American trader Robert Hansen's espionage. Mm. Oh, really? The, uh, the F. Yeah, FBI was uh, tweeting about that today, or maybe it was the National Counterintelligence Security Center. I'm not sure. Uh, They have great Twitter accounts to remind you of these things. Um, Bottom line, we've got Bulgaria is starting to PNG, Russian diplomatic staff. And when you've lost Bulgaria, come on, folks. um, (laughs) That's... You know, they're as close to Russia as, you know, like next to maybe uh, Belarus. So, you know, but how far will Putin go militarily? He's not that far as it is, and his economy is collapsing behind him. You know, insofar as he was hoping to continue a war without buying petroleum ever, mm-hmm. and with airplanes, um, did we talk about this in the last episode of Narrative, where he sees these airplanes? No, that, I, know, you know, I didn't discuss it, but nationalized, it's yeah. He's nationalized all these jets that no, he doesn't own, that nobody in Russia owns, because mm-hmm. most you know airliners, Boeing and Airbus and whatnot, they are purchased on very complicated financial arrangements uh, mm-hmm. with very you know whether it's a private jet or it's a a big big jet with an airliner or an airline, they have to you know pay monthly and there's all you know it's a complicated thing and uh, you know even the airlines don't own that equipment usually, and so. Putin's just nationalized a bunch of this stuff and he can't, you know, use his central banks to purchase the parts to fix them 
Mm-hmm. So he's got a lot of problems. He can't start another <laughs> like, war, know? is what you're saying. He's not going to try break out into Poland or or Hungary or wherever he, he might want to try because he just doesn't. I, have I mean, the he wants to be in Portugal. You know, he'd <laughs> love to be in Halifax. That's being Greece you know, is where he's heading to. Um, Greece, you know, dude, is it's about to get nice this time of year. Sure, I mean, you know, he uh, he's a little map to help us. Yeah, out Greece, he'd be all the way down there. He'd love that. I know you the know, Greeks are quite like favorable to him right now because they refuse to give him the SL300s. You know, it's, they wouldn't give the Ukrainians the SL300s and the Hungarians would not sell any direct weapons to or give any direct weapons to Ukraine. So, you um, mean you know, S300, the, uh, the surface-to-air missiles? Yeah, yeah, those are the SL300s that finally we think Slovakia gave them, um, but we'll see because yep. uh, Slovakia is very nervous about this whole thing. So they've decided to not say it publicly, although it's clearly that's what's going on because the Patriot missiles are already arrived in Slovakia. They're already installing them. I mean, they must be there for a good reason. One assumes that the Slovaks are going to give their, theirs to the Ukrainians, but it could be going through the United States or through a third party in order to to make it whatever it is. It seems crazy they're playing all these games with with who owns and who's giving and whatever, but I guess it's necessary well, for uh, they're, you know, yeah, they're not um, games because NATO's a defensive alliance. Yeah. NATO, well, we're already in World War Three, but yeah. NATO's a defensive alliance. And when an individual country wants to, you know, provide specific armaments to another country, you know, it can sell those armaments. It can give them or can uh, lend lease. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's how we did in World War Two before the United States got involved directly in World War Two, but you know that's a deal between that company that country's national government and uh zelensky's government and uh yeah the the details matter diplomatically there but one thing's for certain we keep giving ukraine really good stuff and um i mean how many uh i don't know which i you know i find more interesting counting the number of uh, yachts they keep losing or the number (laughs) of general officers they keep losing because they're like you know, or heavy, the generals, uh, I think. They've had four generals. And I think the yachts, did you see that? There was 25 had just been nabbed by Finland. 25. Finland, yeah. Finland just grabbed <laughs> handfuls They're of yachts. the yachts. All the yachts they can get. <laughs> I mean, you know, someone's <laughs> got to have those yachts, I guess. So I, I'm, I'm also, you know, the arrival of these stingers and these uh, switchblade drones are also still, you know, they're on their way there. I don't, you know, they're going to make a big change in the... Uh, in the in the field over there i'm quite sure it's going to make a big difference blowing stuff up you know never hurts right mm-hmm. um blowing their stuff up will also you know then they don't have it anymore and the people are dead who are trying to use it mm-hmm. so that always works in war but when you've got this weekend i think since we had a an episode of narrative last i believe the uh there was the president of uh, the swiss canton system came out and said oh yeah you know we're in for ukraine it's like wow switzerland's no longer neutral mm-hmm over yep. this Ukraine issue. That's huge. And then they're talking about, and, and then they're going for the electric rail there. Yeah, we, may, in fact, uh, I believe Zelensky asked Switzerland to seize the um, oligarch's bank accounts. Yeah, they did, yeah. <laughs> now we're at this, you know, once you seize that stuff, that, you know, that means they know who owns what and they seize that. Now you're stopping the flow it's not just what's in those bank accounts. It's what flows through mm-hmm. those bank accounts. It's not like you just there's just a big bank vault in Switzerland, though they have those. But it's the money that comes from Singapore or Mauritius or the Caymans or New York mm-hmm. or London uh, or Moscow and goes somewhere else. And when you take out that central node and say you're done 
you know, sending money from A to B, we're already taking out the official uh, organs of the Russian state economically through its central bank, through anybody buying or selling its uh, sovereign debt. We're going at the oligarchs' assets, but once you get into the you know the accounts and saying you can't even email your banker in Zurich to have him send money from here to there, once we start confiscating that or you know shutting down the ability to transfer anything to anywhere else, that whole system is going to collapse. Yeah, I, I think it is going to collapse. I think also the next few days, what we're going to see is this effort by countries that are NATO countries but are acting individually. Uh, may start doing humanitarian efforts inside Ukraine's borders, which means they are going to be sending in their troops and their uh, humanitarian forces to uh, to try and secure some of these places, but also to try and get relief and food and water to to all these many people who are stuck in Mariupol or other places. Yeah. You know, there was a good uh, convoy right today of fifteen thousand people that was uh, allowed to leave, but you know there's still people in Mariupol. There's still people all along that eastern uh, coastline, and it's very important that they get humanitarian aid. And I, you know, reading this statement by thirteen nations, which are not—they're all NATO nations, but they—they're organizing themselves differently. Uh, it looks like they're going to be trying to put a humanitarian effort in place in the next few days, which is obviously necessary and overdue. But he's going to change the dynamic there to have soldiers from, you know, maybe Poland show up at the uh, shop in Ukraine. Careful on the characterization as soldiers. They're not going to be belligerents there. And there has to be really. Well, and that's usually post-conflict. So, Mm. you know, if you've got the Red Cross in there, do you remember the uh, the D.C. protests when they had a helicopter fly super low? Do you remember that? Summer of 2020, a million years ago. Yes. Oh, the, that was during the protest when they, yes, that was the crazy, uh, I remember that. The outside, yeah. uh, I'm trying to remember the name of the park, but it's like it's next to that church by the White House. It that, was, that you know, yeah, it was around um, where, what I called Bar Team Six, you know, where they had uh, the guys in the paintball pants out, you know, the regular that. troops essentially. But you had some helicopters flying over DC and actually pushing their rotor wash onto protesters and it had a red cross on the side of it. Now, Mm. not everybody understood how nasty that was. And there were, that was immediately became an office of the inspector general investigation because any use of a humanitarian aircraft like that, a hospital, a medic associated aircraft, like with the red cross on it, any offensive use of that is a violation of the Geneva conventions. The Russians and, certainly did it at the start of this conflict. There were oh, yeah. a, lot, a lot of weapons stuck in their ambulances and whatever, you know. Oh, I mean, the, the Russians, you know, that's this is their, it's funny. Everyone's getting to meet the Russians. Like, wow, they're committing, you know, they're kidnapping people and sending them to gulags. They're, you know, they're committing human rights violations. It's like, yeah, it's the Russians. Mm-hmm. That's this is their gig. Sergey, uh, jump in here a little bit and talk to us about this humanitarian effort that's so necessary right now, but also just the, you know, the incredible toll that's taken on Mariupol and the people there. Uh, yeah, you know, like, <clears throat> um, as Eric said, like, uh, this is, uh, I think, um, while it's shocking to people and, and, you know, seeing it live and seeing it in real time is really difficult. It's at the same time, it's not surprising. I mean, uh, we've seen similar things happen in Syria and other conflicts as Russia's participated in you know, opening corridors and then deciding midway through that they needed to shell because whatever reason they make up that they needed to shell that convoy of, you know, civilians. 
Yeah, I mean, it's extremely difficult to navigate this. You don't know, like, you know, you reach an agreement to open a corridor and then all of a sudden it gets bombed. You, I mean, once you breach that trust, like, how do you reestablish that as a, as a civilian leaving Mariupol? It's like, do you want to, you know, you have to make a decision. Do I risk getting shot in the convoy or do I risk getting bombed in, in my home? So it's it's really difficult, you know, once, once like, one law is broken, none of them really matter. Mm-hmm. Whatever conventions you had before, they kind of go out the window. Now you don't know, like... You know, is it safer to stay, safer to go? I was just going to say, it's going to make the entire conflict more difficult. You know, like in World War II, during the East, in the Eastern Front, uh, once the once one side uh, committed a war crime, it was kind of um, free game to commit crimes and be as brutal as possible. And that's kind of where it's leading with Russia, uh, violating any conventions and all the laws. It's kind of like, well, now anybody can do anything. Yeah, it does seem like we've descended into medieval times. It also is kind of concerning to me that, you know, once the, if, if Mariupol does fall, fall, we don't know if it will, it might, you know, the Ukrainians are being very brave, but if it does fall, those 6,000 soldiers that are currently encircling Mariupol can then be deployed elsewhere. And they're, um, they're a ferocious bunch. And, uh, you know, that's a difficult situation for Mariupol. And once they've got to hold just to keep the, the soldiers there. Uh, well, you know, there's a discussion of um, whether you stick to the more, more symbolic victory and try to secure each city, or do you kind of accept that the East is being slowly overtaken and go b- fall back to the Dnieper River, where defense will be, you know, much more realistic, much easier for the Ukrainians. And, you know, it's it's definitely the fight over the cities is, of course, um, you know, there's the individual level if you want to protect every citizen you can, but there's definitely an overarching strategic level. Um, mm. You know, whenever a city falls, it's a big hit to the morale. Uh, hit for morale for the Ukrainians, but also kind of a morale boost for the Russian troops. Uh, but yeah, like even if Mariupol falls, there's going to be guerrilla warfare. There's going to be partisans throughout the countryside. Like Russia's not going to get out scot-free. Uh, you know, it's it's going to be very bloody. And even if a city falls, um, I don't think that the Azov battalion that's there, I don't think they're going to, you know, just surrender. I mean, if they're forced to, obviously, but if they can, you know, fall back and then cause havoc in the to the back lines, they're definitely going to try. Can I ask you a question about the Azov group? I don't know the answer to this question. It's a genuine curiosity. There are, you know, the Russians will say that they're Nazis or whatever. Uh, that's their allegation against them. Are they tied to any neo-Nazi party? Are they connected to anything like that? Or do they have underpinnings like that? Uh, yeah, it's difficult. You know, there's definitely Nazis, first of all. Like, um, I don't pretend like there aren't. Uh, I've done some research on uh, far right groups in Ukraine. So basically, they started out, uh, I don't want to get this wrong, so yeah. could kind of be brief. But from what I understand, they definitely started out with far-right uh, Nazi ideology. But they also, when they were you know, um, fighting back in 2014, they were kind of letting whoever join to the point where today it's like a lot of people don't know that they have Nazi connections, that they have far-right members within their group, uh, like uh, people in Ukraine. A lot of them don't really realize what the group is you know if you look uh, some members definitely have a uh, nazi uh, tattoos um, mm-hmm. swastikas things like that from my understanding it's a minority uh perhaps uh, you know the overarching ideology is really related to nazism um but from what i've seen a lot of members don't particularly dabble in that it's more like kind of a group within a group kind of thing mm-hmm. again i don't want to uh, you know talk yeah, for yeah. I- 
And I don't give too much credence to it because what they're doing right now is remarkable. At the end of the day, their defense of uh, Mariupol and defense of the whole eastern coastline over there is, is quite, is, you know, just so courageous. It's unbelievable that they're sticking to such an incredible fight and um, being so resilient. We're way over time, gentlemen, and it's almost time for us to go. So um, I, I don't want to lose the judge and the justice hearing as well. Eric, I don't know if you have any last thoughts about that or about anything, really. What's, what, what do you have to say to, to close the show? Well, I'm going to stick with the national security angle here. Keep mm. an eye on Joe Biden in the NATO countries and what we get up to with our allies. I think we're going to advance rapidly this week. I agree. I think the next few days are going to be interesting. He's in NATO tomorrow and then EU and then Poland, I think, on Thursday. So uh, we're building up to quite a crescendo here. Um, Sergey, thank you so much for being here. Anything you want to share with our audience before you go? Is there anything else you'd like to tell to tell our, our audience that we can find you as well and where they might want to follow your work? Uh, yeah, so I mean, most of my work is on the Kiev Independent, although I do some freelancing on Twitter. It's uh, at Serge Slipped um, one and uh, that's where I'm mostly am. But yeah, just, you know, there's always sides to conflicts, but I think in Ukraine, it's pretty evident that, you know, civilians are suffering due to an unjustified war and, uh, you know, uh, make your own decisions. But I think the evidence is pretty overwhelming for which side is in the right here. So I just want to say, you know, uh, if you want to support Ukraine, uh, it's definitely needed. Uh, there's a big humanitarian crisis and, uh, whatever support you want to provide, whether it's monetary or, you know, go over there physically or even send supplies or anything like that. Um, it will be any, everything counts, even, uh, you know, sharing information. Yeah, uh, there's, there's no doubt the Ukrainians are fighting for democracy around the world. They're not just fighting for democracy in Ukraine. They're, they're fighting for all of us. And, you know, the fact that we could have a hearing today where uh, even though there was some crazy stuff mentioned, it was happening in a, in a in a civilized, respectful, mostly respectful way, uh, an exchange of ideas between people who didn't agree with each other that didn't end up going to violence. That is what the, the essence of democracy is all about, you know, and is rule of law and and justice and having even even African American um, justice on the. Um, on the Supreme Court, what a huge, huge thing that will be. And hopefully that'll happen in the next day. And it's the people in Ukraine that are fighting for that because Putin is coming after everybody who has a democracy. He's not stopping, I don't believe, stopping at the Ukrainian border. So we certainly know his intentions here in the United States. It's not going to stop anytime soon. You know, our, our gratitude to the Ukrainians for that. And on that note... Thank you very much, Sergey. Thanks for being here. Hopefully you'll come back and you'll have a little longer time for us to, to spend some time with you. And Eric Garland, thank you for being here tonight. That is the show for tonight. Tomorrow night, big surprise on the show. We're going to delve into some NATO history and look at exactly uh, how the military campaign is being waged and how it might end uh, with a very well and uh, well-respected and noted NATO historian. So that'll be tomorrow on Narrative Live. See you then. Until then, hope you have a great evening. Good night, everybody. Narrative is made possible by viewers like you. Join today and support truly independent journalism at patreon.com forward slash narrative. That's patreon.com forward slash narrative.